The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, if you were alive and paying attention to literature in the 1990s, you no doubt recall the intense series of battles known as the Cannon Wars. That's canon with one N, or I guess two N's instead of three, C-A-N-O-N, which essentially boils down to what books should be published, read, and most particularly taught in schools and universities. What are essential to a good education? What books define our civilization and culture? Is it like a Hall of Fame, or should it look to express our current values and mores? Clearly, the choices are subjective, but is it in any sense objective? And in any case, whose subjectivity gets to decide? A whole wave of new academics pushed to bring new works into the canon, and a bulwark of tenured professors, many of them white and male, dug in their heels and said, not on our watch. Chief among them was the professor and critic Harold Bloom, whose book, The Western Canon, became the agent provocateur, or maybe I should say, the defiant flag hoisted by the holder of territory, even as that territory is surrounded by invading forces. We're joined today by the book maven, Beth Ann Patrick, host of the new podcast, Missing Pages, to revisit the Western canon without wading through the ins and outs of the battle that took place in the 1990s and beyond. We seek to add to Bloom's list. It's been almost 30 years since the book came out. We're not beholden to Bloom's well-considered, but at times, suspect judgments. What if we keep his 26 authors and add 10 of our own? Will we round it out or water it down? An updating of Bloom's Western canon with the Book Maven today on the History of Literature. go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. We have a good one in store for you, a fun one for you literature nuts, which I'm assuming is every single person currently listening. Bloom's Western canon, Harold Bloom, is a little like Plato slash Socrates, where he says things with such confidence, it's easy to go along with the flow, assuming that there's no real room for debate. But as soon as you engage your brain, you start to think, wait, what? That's a leap. And that is an opinion being disguised as a fact. That And that one's just wrong. How can you be so blind to your own bias? Bloom could be downright offensive at times, labeling any effort to open up the canon as what he called the school of resentment. Feminists, Marxists, post-colonialists, people of color, and his defense of his picks often boil down to, well, fine, if you like reading that, but it's not good enough to be included. He included 26 authors and would argue passionately for all of them, but his criteria was not always clear and often had gaping holes, even on its own terms. His list would fall short sometimes. He could get tangled up in his own assertions. He's fun to, to read when you're not throwing the book against the wall in disgust. I do think he loved 
truly loved literature, but he drew a pretty tight circle. At his editor's insistence, he included an appendix that served as a kind of honorable mention, and, and that contained hundreds of extra titles, including lots of books by women and lots of books by people of color. But he later said he regretted going along with that instruction or demand by his editor because he thought it was a distraction. Instead, he was served a function kind of like the priest who wishes the Mass would still be in Latin and who says, well, who let all these unwashed vulgarians in to the party? Well, <laughs> enter unwashed vulgarian Jack Wilson. For one, here's the thing. Those 26 writers that uh, Bloom chose might not be the best or the only, but I actually think they're a good start. I'd cross off a few if I were forced to make a list of just 26. And I don't want these to be the only books taught. But hey, you're probably going to read more than 26 writers in your lifetime, so have at it. These 26 are definitely worth your time. But so are 100 others. Beth Ann and I... In this episode, we'll offer up 10 of them for your consideration, and we make our case for why those are worthy choices in and of themselves, and also what they would add to Bloom's list. She and I have the luxury of not being in the academy where this argument has much more impact. We're just readers, free to roam the garden of literature like hummingbirds, sampling what we want, sipping here and gorging ourselves there. In the university, this discussion is it's a whole different kind of discussion. It's a whole different ball game in the university. There, the fights are ferocious and for good reason. Faculty positions are on the line. Courses must be taught and minds must be formed. And all of this will depend heavily on which authors are selected for the syllabi and which ones are left out. Whole departments can sprout like new growth in the forest and whole departments can just as quickly be axed. What do presses publish? What do journals print? What does academia accept? That's not our inquiry, thank goodness. We try to be all-inclusive here at the History of Literature podcast and not judgmental. If I were doing 10 episodes, I'd have to draw some lines, but I'm closing in on 500 podcast episodes. There's a lot of room in this here tent. So... Let's run through Bloom's list, and then we'll bring out Beth Ann to help us enhance it. Okay, number one on Harold Bloom's list, William Shakespeare. Okay, <laughs> let me just pause there. You see what I mean? I'm not saying a Western canon must include Shakespeare, but what's the case against including him? You kind of have to have him in there. Right? Some of the rest of the names on the list aren't quite as established, but they are all pretty high up there. They're high on the list of people who, writers who have formed the Western canon. I'll just run through them all so we can discuss. Number one, Shakespeare. Then Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Montaigne, Moliere, John Milton, Samuel Johnson, Goethe, Wordsworth, Jane Austen, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Leo Tolstoy, Ibsen, Freud, Proust, Joyce, Wolf, Kafka, 
Borges, Neruda, Pessoa, and Beckett. A lot of Europeans. Well, this is the Western canon after all. But there's a lot of Europeans, a lot of white people, a lot of men. Mostly playwrights, poets, and novelists. With an essayist, Montaigne, and a critic, Dr. Johnson, thrown into the mix. Four women total out of 26. Jane Austen, Emily Dickinson, George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf. All in all, the list is reasonable for what it is setting out to do. It's fairly predictable. 26 heavy hitters. This is the establishment list. Establishment with a capital E. Who surprised me when I read it back in 1994? Well, I had never heard of Fernando Pessoa, so that was new to me. The rest were all pretty much the people I was reading or planned to read. I'm pretty sure you could take a course at my school, the University of Chicago, that would have works by all those people. Not a single course. I mean, you could take courses that would include all of those in the English department. And some of them, some of the names on the list, would have been hard to avoid in 1994. You couldn't go through four years of school in the late 1980s and early 1990s and not encounter Freud or Virginia Woolf, for that matter. And you couldn't be an English major and avoid Shakespeare, and most people, English majors and non-English majors alike, were pretty familiar with the Bard, as well as with Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson and Tolstoy and Proust and Joyce. Not much argument there. We passed around Borges and Neruda, like Samizdat. We believed we were living out Kafka's dream slash nightmare and Samuel Beckett's too. We watched movies based on Tolstoy and Jane Austen and Dickens and so on. 26 good friends to invite to our literary table. But if you have 26 good friends when you're in college and you keep living for another 28 years, as those of us, some of us, have been lucky enough to do, you'll hopefully make at least 10 more friends. Time to put an extension on the table, add a few more chairs. Beth Ann and I will each propose five new friends for our literary gathering after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is Beth Ann Patrick, a critic, reviewer, and memoirist who is also busy on Twitter as The Book Maven. She's the host of a new podcast called Missing Pages, and she's here today to revisit and supplement the Western canon as proposed by Harold Bloom. Beth Ann Patrick, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. I am delighted to be here. There couldn't be a better podcast for me to guest on. Oh, that's nice. And good luck with your podcast. I'll ask you about that one when we get to the end here. Excellent. I know we're very excited about it, the podglomerate. Okay. So I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. And I, I, as I explained to you, I will have explained a lot of this to the listeners already. But I'm thinking of Bloom's list as as kind of like my concrete porch that crumbled over the winter where the corners fell off. And the the contractor came and said, you know, we could either rip out the whole thing and you can build a complete new one from scratch, which is heavy to remove, expensive, and, and will require a lot of work. Or we can build a frame around this and build up the corners and pour new concrete over it and you'll have have the corners will be fixed and you'll have a new surface. And that's kind of how I'm thinking of this. Bloom's list is fine for what it's doing, but it's 30 years old and it's limited and it seems fair to add 10 new items to the list. So does that sound good? I wanted you to help me come up with these 10 names that will freshen up the list and expand it and see if we can make a porch that kids aren't afraid to visit on Halloween. That sounds so good to me, Jack. And uh, I know that our choices today are not the only ones that can be made, but I think they're (laughs) really strong in terms of their ability to, you know, hold up corners. Good. So, yeah, that was one of the things that I found as I was going through this and trying to pick five is I thought, you know, I... I know Bloom was was heavily criticized, but I ended up having a lot of sympathy for him because choosing just five made it made me realize if he was limiting himself to some number that's under a hundred, let's say, it's pretty hard to include everyone that one thinks one, that should be added. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we are going to have fun with each other's choices. We're going to learn from them. And then I hope that some of your listeners will, you know, tell us, no, you should have chosen so-and-so or (laughs) choose this person too. I can't wait to hear because with Bloom's List, as you said, they're heavy hitters. They undoubtedly should be there. But I kept thinking, well, what about this one? And what about that one? And when someone like you is considering the history of literature as a whole. Um, There are always holes in it. When I was making my choices, I had to choose kind of uh, things that I thought would would represent whole areas he missed or whole gaps either in the historical record or uh, it was pretty notorious when the list came out that it was uh, pretty short on women, pretty short on people of color. And, and and also, you know, it's 30 years later. And now that we have some perspective, we can include kind of the second half of the 20th century, which he was writing in the 1990s and, and didn't really include many people beyond Samuel Beckett, I think was kind of the 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 end point for him. So it does uh, seem like it gives us a good opportunity to introduce some new authors and some new schools to people and kind of make our choices and explain why. So I'll give you the first pick. Uh, who would you add in order to round out Harold Bloom's Western canon? Well, Jack, you were just talking about the second half of the 20th century. And mm-hmm. so, of course, I have to add the goat, the greatest of all time. And that <laughs> is Toni Morrison. Right. 
<laughs> I mean, it, you know, no list is complete without her anymore. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, maybe it would have been complete before she was born, but now that she has lived and written, uh, you know, so much, of course, beloved is mm-hmm. the one that we all have to, uh, we all have to grapple with Beloved, I think. Uh, you can read Sula or The Bluest Eye or any of Morrison's other amazing novels, amazing works of fiction. But Beloved is something that is transformative. And it is transformative, not just because it goes directly into the problem of racial injustice in the United States. And it goes there in a shocking, horrifying way. No spoilers though, mm. um, <laughs> but it, it it does so in an experimental way, in a way that breaks open the form of the novel, breaks open fiction. Mm. And like some of the people on Bloom's list, Cervantes, Chaucer, um, Jane Austen, um, we could uh, Virginia Woolf. I mean, I could go on and on. I think that is one of the things we need to look for when we're expanding this list, shoring it up, um, strengthening uh, is people who have said, I know what comes before me, but I also know that I can do something completely different. Mm. And mm-hmm. there's a certain sense of, I don't know, um, authority and um, groundedness in Morrison's work that will make any reader, no matter what your background is, when you come to Toni Morrison's work, you are going to feel that you're in the hands of a complete, I hate to use the word master because of, you know, the way things are in the patri- with the patriarchy these days, but mm-hmm. you you're in the hands of someone who is a complete expert and guide. Yeah, a genius, an artist. She, yes. It's a total no-brainer that this was the first choice on my list, too. And I love it. Yeah, Bloom had a real blind spot here. And, you know, he, he was writing with some recency. He His book came out in 1994, and she had won the Nobel Prize in 1993. Beloved had been published, was published in 1987. So he had time to consider it, and he included her in, in his appendix, uh, where he listed kind of all the other honorable mentions. But he didn't list Beloved. He listed only Song of Solomon, and I think he just—I um, don't want to spend too much time litigating his choices, right. and, because, you know, who cares, really? <laughs> He's, he's he's so bombastic that I, I don't always take him seriously, but he does seem to have been kind of fighting this battle. And I feel like uh, he developed this idea of the school of resentment. And and I think he he came to believe that if it had he was so he was so intent on protecting uh, his choices against multiculturalist works that he thought weren't as good, that he came to view anything with multiculturalism as being in that category rather than recognizing that there would be room for a beloved or a Toni Morrison, that it's kind of like I'm reminded of the 
the story of Picasso, where it wasn't until he saw his paintings in the museum that he felt really good and said, you know, these belong, these these hold up, these fit right in, and, and these these deserve to be on this shelf. And I feel like you can put Toni Morrison on this list and feel very comfortable that she flows right out of, you know, Virginia Woolf and Kafka and, and all of the fiction writers who come before and is as worthy and um, is is not diluting the list by including her. Uh, Toni Morrison didn't need to have room made for her, Jack. Mm -hmm. She blew up a room. Yeah. She, <laughs> she made her own room. And uh, I, I I agree that, uh, you know, Bloom was myopic and uh, in not including her. And, you know, we all come from our context. And he I'm I'm glad we have the perspective to see that you know, she is absolutely on the list now. And as you said, every writer comes from various traditions, even the writers that, you know, do something completely new, they've got something at their foundation. And so saying, as you did, that, you know, Toni Morrison has Virginia Woolf as a literary antecedent or Kafka, etc. Those are all true and yes, mm. there you go. That's my uh, my improv moment for Toni Morrison. Yeah. Okay, so let me take my number one, and I'm going to basically kind of question the idea of where he began. My number one pick is Homer, and I I get that he's kind of he. I feel like he wanted to start with Shakespeare. But then he couldn't resist reaching back in time for Dante and Chaucer. And I just feel like if you're reaching back for Chaucer, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't reach back to, to Plato and Aristotle and the, the Greek tragedies, but especially reaching back for Homer. So Homer, for me, is going to stand for let's make sure that people are aware that the Western canon is something that we can go back a couple thousand years as well as just a few hundred. And it... it the main reason why I think why I want to do it is because I find it so invigorating to read Homer, not just because of the story and the poetry, but that it's describing this pre-Christian world. And it lets you see humanity before Christianity. Everything that comes after feels like it's either uh, you know, flowing out of Christianity or it's a response to it, but it's so dominated by Christian thinking and, and just kind of the whole Christian tradition, which is so strong. And to, to read Homer and to be free of all that just gives you this sort of room for comparison that I find really fascinating. And, and then it's been so influential as in Western literature that I'm, I just am not sure why you can have a Western canon without it. I would agree with you, Jack, uh, and it's, it is very surprising that there is no Homer on Bloom's list. And I wondered, you know, was he thinking we don't have a Western canon until English is yeah, being written? Right. That, that is, <laughs> it could be. Strange. And His... what, what you just said is it's so stunning um, to, A, think of English as being the line in the sand because it's not it's not yeah, right the west but the other thing you said about the christian tradition i would say the judeo-christian right. tradition yeah and it, you know the fact that 
in Homer's works, it is a pre uh, Judeo Christian, pre Muslim world. We don't have these three huge faiths that everyone talks about all the time, right? Um, we have a world that has a different belief system, a, a different kind of um, deism, a different everything. And, you know, I have always loved Homer, and I'm going to talk about Homer in terms of one of my other picks in a little while. Mm. But one of the things I want to make sure that everyone realizes is that the new translation of the Odyssey by Emily Wilson is amazing. Mm. You know, it may not be your favorite. I know everyone has a different, you know, favorite translation, um, unless you are um, reading it in the original um, Greek. And, you know, at this point, uh, there are fewer people who know classical languages than before. And so many of us are reading Homer in translation. And I think it's wonderful to make sure you have more than one translation in your arsenal. Mm. Yes. Okay. What is your number two? Oh. This is so, I mean, it's, I, I didn't know I was going to be ranking my because it's only five. And well, so, right. We could say they're maybe after Toni Morrison, they come in no particular order. No particular order. But I will go back a little earlier in the 20th century and um, talk about Constantine Cavafy. Cavafy. Mm is on my list because one of the things I decided is I wanted to mix things up among uh, literary genres and I wanted to include a poet. Mm -hmm. And I love so much 20th century poetry um, and it isn't easy to find someone, again, this is like Morrison, Jack, someone who is not just thinking about things in new ways, presenting new images, combining new feelings, but also a complete craftsman, someone mm. who is putting things together so beautifully. And Kavafi, who is associated mostly with Egypt because he lived most of his life in Alexandria, was actually born to Greek parents. And I want to emphasize that. We just talked about Homer. And uh, Kavafi really learned about poetry in the Greek tradition. That, even though he was... Um, writing in Egypt and knew many different languages, the the Greek fundamentals of poetry really inform how he writes. But they don't, and maybe, maybe we can say they inform what he writes. So here he is, he's born in Alexandria, then his parents move, they wind up in Liverpool, then they wind up in Constantinople. And then he, you know, he lives in England again. And then he's, he just is a man of the world, a true mm. man of the world, really understands Eastern and Western traditions. And in writing his poetry, Kavafi, um, whom I discovered in the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell, uh, is someone who really understands that it's time for the world to acknowledge homoeroticism, homosexuality, desire of different kinds. And he wrote about all kinds of love and his writing about love and desire is it, it's at 
the finest. It's it's he's got to be in the top five um, poets of the 20th century. Hmm. Um, he is an absolutely fascinating figure who didn't seem to care much about his publication history while he was alive. He was a little bit of a, a you know a loner, a hermit. Um, his most important poems were written in middle age weren't published until after his death. So he's not someone who, you know, was an active, I don't know, someone seeking fame is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. He just really cared about his work. And he is someone, anyone who is writing verse can turn to, to learn about form, to learn about scansion, to learn about, you know, how to make a poem tight and and meaningful, but you can also read him to feel and to expand your world. And for someone who he, you know, he who lived such a small life in some ways, he, you know, he traveled a lot and he knew a lot, but he also didn't choose to be this big character. He he, he's in a way he's like Jane Austen, mm, you know, yeah. living mm-hmm. or, or Emily Dickinson. Yeah. There, these writers on these lists, these canonical lists, who um, choose the inner world above the outer world. Mm-hmm. It's a great pick. And I'm going to use this. I, I agree that he, uh, Bloom could have had more poets. And I've got a couple on my list as well. And Excellent. He, uh, he also kind of jumped over this time period and, you know, there were some like it's very surprising when you read this list to see that T.S. Eliot is not on there. I uh, know that, I, that I, seems I, like it would have been, you know, one of Bloom's choices with the wasteland and everything. Rilke is another pick that could have been made. And Yeats is another one. There's there's some very uh, significant and important poets. Kavafi is great for all the reasons that you mentioned. And I think that is definitely going to help round out our list. Excellent. Now, on to your next pick. I can't wait. Okay. Well, speaking of gaps and speaking of a couple of gaps in a couple of different ways, uh, there's no short story writers on here. And I think that's a significant uh, absence uh, that we can rectify. And also, as you mentioned, he's Bloom is very Anglophone centric. He's English language centric. And so he has one Russian Tolstoy. And I think uh, a lot of Russians would probably say Pushkin was deserved to be on here, or uh, certainly Gogol and Dostoevsky, you could make a good case for. Uh, Those are all um, pretty important people, surprising omissions. I'm going to take Chekhov. Oh, what a wonderful, beautiful choice. (laughs) And, you know, Bloom had said, uh, I've tried to represent national canons by their crucial figures. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth, Dickens for England, uh, Tolstoy for Russia. And right there you kind of see, well, why does England get through five different people and Russia only gets one? Certainly Russian literature has been as central to the the canon as, as English literature, really. And so um, I, I just, everything about Chekhov, he's the one I keep returning to. He he just gets better and better as I get older. I love the, the subtlety he has in his short stories. His plays also make him kind of a major figure. He, Bloom only mentions him once, uh, in, and it's in the Ibsen section. And he says, um, 
Ibsen is is at times even more is more subtle even than Chekhov. And I think, well, why not just include Chekhov then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he says uh, he, the the aspect of uh, Ibsen he was talking about was intuiting how to give perspective on his characters through aspects of our perceptions and sensations. And I think Chekhov does that in his plays and in his short stories. And I just love the way he he addresses some of the thorniest aspects of the human condition, malaise and disappointment and painfully awkward moments and hopes that are raised and then dashed and and a seeking without a finding, questions without answers, and just his devotion to connection and, and ambition and purpose and love and life, even when that might be impossible or too late is something that as I age, I just get more and more kind of a, a steadier appreciation for. So I can't help thinking that Bloom was a little bit too devoted. You know, Falstaff was kind of one of Bloom's favorite characters. I, I kind of help, can't help thinking that he was too devoted to the big and the bold and the brash, and it, it may be uh, something about Bloom's own temperament maybe did not allow him to appreciate uh, the kind of characters I appreciate, which is more thoughtful, contemplative, quiet, and uh, suffering silently. <laughs> I, I really uh, relate to everything that you love in Chekhov. And I also think that, you know, Bloom had that tendency toward the brash and toward um, the swagger in a way. Mm -hmm. but the other thing I want to make sure to mention about Chekhov in, in those predilections you just talked about, Jack, is that one of my favorite sort of micro genres, if you will, is um, World War One and post-World War One poetry. Mm -hmm. Especially, uh, you know, I, oh my God, David Jones is in parentheses, um, is just such a, a, an experimental, amazing, um, important thing. I don't know if it belongs on a list like this or Sassoon or Wilfred Owen or anything, you know, mm -hmm. they had a time and place, but in that time and place, they were groundbreaking writers. And I believe that Chekhov in his turn to the, um, the inward and the emotional and the, the disappointing side of life really influenced these people, these men particularly, who had seen what at that point definitely would have seemed like the end of the world. How could things get any worse? And of course, we know that they did and they probably will again. But uh, World War One was the Great War to Europe. And it was something that changed everything. And without the Chekhovs of the world, the writers wouldn't have had a certain way of looking inside and understanding that you can write about the things that don't work in this world. Mm. You don't have to simply write about, it, it doesn't have to be a great tragedy to be a tragedy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does. Okay, so let's take a quick break and come back with the rest of our picks.
Okay, we are back. Beth Ann Patrick, we have chosen already. We're doing well. We've got Tony Morrison. We've got Konstantin Kavafi. We've got Anton Chekhov. And we've got Homer. Uh, I'd say we're yeah. four for four so far. So who is your next pick? Oh, I'm going to share one that maybe some people don't know about, and that is Russia's Svetlana Alexievich. Mm-hmm. And if you, let's see, if you don't know Alexievich, there's so many places to start, but she is probably best known by audiences in the United States for her voices of Chernobyl. Um, and that, of course, has, you know, that has been um, made into a documentary, I believe. What would you call it? Um, uh, but it, the reason I'm saying what would you call it is that Alexievich is um, she is a Nobel laureate, Alexievich, mm-hmm. and she writes what she calls nonfiction novels. Mm. And first of all, the term fiction novels, of course, is something we make fun of a lot in the publishing industry. Right, right. And I want to say, so I want to say <laughs> I'm not in any way making fun of Alexievich when she says these are nonfiction novels. It's a very, very important distinction. What she's trying to say is these are about the truth. I did these interviews. She interviews hundreds of subjects for all of her books in um, Belarus, which is where she's from, in in the people from the former Soviet Union that borrowed time. The Last of the Soviets is her most recent book, I believe. Uh, She talks to people. She gets down real interviews, but she pastes them together in such a collage-like way Mm -hmm. that she says... Look, these are novels. I am not telling you the unvarnished truth. I am telling you a version of the truth that comes out of making this pastiche. And you have to understand that. It's the kind of truth she believes that comes out of great novels, like Mm -hmm. those Tolstoy and Chekhov. And, well, Chekhov, not, you know, the same thing. But um, what she's saying is, Listen and pay attention. Don't take this as unvarnished truth, but listen. Hear these people in their own voices, in their own words. I have, you know, it's almost like a fine cabinet maker who takes a beautiful piece of cherry, a beautiful piece of ebony, uh, an incredible length of maple, and makes them all work in the same piece of furniture. So they're beautifully joined and the craft, you know, you can't usually see it. It's very fine what she does. But at the same time, she is making you aware that she does it. And I had the privilege of seeing her speak once with Mm. a simultaneous translator because she does not speak English. And she was um, talking about one of the anecdotes in a book that she wrote about women um, soldiers. And I can't remember the name of that book right now, Jack, but it will, it may come to me. But anyway, she was saying, she's doing an interview with this one woman who went off to be a soldier in World War II. And she said, the woman said something along the lines of, I was so naive. I had two suitcases and in one of them I had like, you know, my hairbrush and my nightgown and the other one was just filled with chocolate because I knew I would miss chocolate. Like I had no, Mm. this is like, I had no idea what I was doing. And I thought this tiny anecdote is so telling. It's, it just opens you up to the feeling of what it's like to be a naive young woman swept up in 
the currents of history, and yet to be an individual, to be a chocolate-loving, you know, teenager uh, who's worried about not having enough of her favorite treat. That's what Alexievich does for every single person, male, female, young, old, um, no matter where they live or what they've experienced. And there's so much humanity in her work. And I can't imagine a canon that doesn't include her books now. Mm. That's really well put. It's a great choice. And, you know, in some ways, she's offering a path forward out of a dilemma that I think uh, novelists have sort of encountered. And that is the dilemma that we have regarding omniscience. You know, it was so easy for a Tolstoy to adopt this tone of omniscience. And it's so valuable to him and is is so powerful and effective, and it lets him do so much with the narrative. And we've kind of gotten away from that because we sort of suspect omniscience now. It's kind of like, well, who are you to make a statement that grand about, you know, that this is how things are when you're just a person who's limited by your time and place and your background and and your identity. And so we get a lot of first-person books, and we get a lot of um, close third books. Uh, but the omniscient voice is one that I think novelists find it increasingly hard to use because it just doesn't feel natural to how we understand the authority that someone can speak with. She's kind of found a way around this by saying, uh, I can be invisible and let these voices speak. I'll be here as the artist shaping it and and presenting it and molding it. And you can get a point of view out of that, but it doesn't uh, require me to step in and make these grand statements that are definitive because I'm letting these voices talk for me. Absolutely. I love that, Jack. I, I love that you're talking about technique in terms of Alexievich because that is something so important to her, but also because omniscience, which fascinates me, and I have a particular novel in a drawer that really needs an omniscient voice. I'll never pull it off. <laughs> but I remember when I was first learning about the omniscient voice, Someone said something to me. Uh, we were talking about Middlemarch, which I think mm. is first George Eliot belongs on Bloom's list. And one of the reasons George Eliot belongs on Bloom's list is because Eliot understood something about the omniscient voice that is so important. And it's this you start as the fly on the wall in Dorothea's room. And then you become, I don't know if you want to call it the fly or if the fly gets bigger and becomes, you know, a falcon and then, uh, you know, a great horned owl and then, a, a I don't know, a glider plane, et cetera. But you are going out wider and wider into the world from an individual's perspective and seeing all of these things get bigger and bigger and understanding how not exactly what Dorothea does, but that her world, what's happening outside of her, it's literary historic, it, it, it's, you know, new historicism in a literary context before anyone even talked about new historicism, mm. you know, in that context. And, you know, om omniscience takes a lot of control and it takes so much thought. And like you said, Alexievich has, you know, she's like, okay, 
I've got it. These people, they can already tell me all of this. And then I just do the fine craftsmanship. And I'm not saying she's only a craftsperson. I, I mean, I think she does a lot more than that. But in a way, that's the humility at the base of her work. Yeah. And it gets around that question. She, she said she was searching for a literary method that would allow the closest possible approximation to real life. And it gets around the question of just reading it and thinking, well, who are you and how do you know this? And what is, you know, why, why do you think this is important? And how did this exactly. story come to you? And how do you know what all these people were thinking? It just, it subtracts all of that and gives a kind of unfiltered, direct uh, proximity or apprehension of these voices. Absolutely. And I love the fact that uh, you have read, I think, more than I have in this world, because it's not often that I get to meet someone who, uh, you know, does read as widely as I do. And that is not self-congratulatory in any way. It's just that this is my MO. I just can't stand sticking to only... Mm -hmm. You know, the canon, I can't stand sticking to only the West. That doesn't mean that I don't have opinions like you do on uh, what should be in the Western canon. It's just really delightful um, to talk to some, to, to talk to another uh, reader uh, <laughs> in, of my of my particular predilections and tastes. So uh, right. I do have one more, but I know you get the next one. Yes, and you are leading me right into my next one. Uh, this is probably my most controversial pick, and it's the, the the strongest one where you can see why someone might say, well, now you're you're reaching beyond your boundaries a little bit. Because if we're talking about a Western canon, uh, this is, you know, this maybe uh, presses that definition a little bit to the stretching okay. point. Hopefully it doesn't break it. But I wanted to include another poet. I wanted to include a Japanese poet. Uh, and my idea here, my justification for it, is that the haiku form has become so important in the Western canon. Yep. And I think I think Bloom or, or someone who's maybe a stickler for, for the definitions might say, well, the way to talk about it then is to talk about a writer like Emerson or Thoreau or Jack Kerouac or somebody who was specifically drawing upon the Buddhist traditions or was enlightened by them or something. But I just want to go to the source and include Basho. Uh, I just did a couple of episodes on him recently, and I think you can learn a lot from reading Basho's haiku. You can learn a lot about, about form and about poetry and sensibility and humanity, but I think you can learn about those things in the East and the West from reading him. I think it's, I think we've kind of absorbed him in. And so I'd like to just kind of give a nod as we're kind of pushing, the, I feel like we're in a collapsed tent a little bit and you and I are kind of <laughs> pushing it up in different directions. We're maybe putting a few broomstick handles, in, you know, into kind of keeping our tent a little higher. And I'm thinking I'd like to push, push a little bit in this direction. You know, I'm glad you're pushing because, first of all, I I wrote a column for seven years for um, Lit Hub about the books you missed in the previous month. Hmm. And even though uh, my readers wouldn't let me call it a books in translation column, I crammed as many books in translation as I possibly could <laughs> into yeah. 
And I just learned so much about what's going on in other countries in terms of style and substance. And, you know, for example, how, why haven't we put Garcia Marquez on this list yet? You know, there yes. are so many other writers from other places. Well, I say, think, um, you know, Tim Winton from Australia is one that I'm not sure if he's quite ready for canonical stat status, but um, he's really close to it. So I say, hooray, Basho. As you mentioned, Jack, haiku is a form that has really been, if it hasn't been integrated into the West, which I would argue it has, it has influenced um, Western thought and poetry so greatly um, that, you know, Basho really transcends yet is so much a part of Japanese tradition. I wanted another writer I wanted to put on the list is Japan's Shisako Endo, because people who have mm. heard me talk about um, his book, um, oh gosh, and now I'm forgetting another title. Come on, it's the one about the, uh, the Portuguese priests in the 16th century. Um, I, I'll think of it, but anyway. Is that uh, Silence? Yes, silence. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. <laughs> you really do read as widely as I do. Um, and I just, but Basho, again, like some other people we've talked about today to add to the list, innovated in form and also used the form to bring out new ideas and feelings. And, uh, you know, it, it just cannot be underestimated, haiku. Yeah. Right. Since you mentioned uh, Marquez, um, I wanted to uh, just sort of say, clearly, second half of the 20th century, I kind of had him in a, a sort of secondary spot. If you hadn't taken Toni Morrison, I would have uh, taken Marquez. Um, it, you know, he's right there as far yeah. as influence, importance, uh, readability, and, um, you know, again, kind of expanding in a, a corner that Bloom seems to have had a bit of a blind spot for. But uh, as far as 20th century, second half of the 20th century novelists, um, and maybe there are a couple others that I'll mention a little bit later, but definitely... Uh, he would have been a worthy choice as well. So we're on, um, I think, your fourth pick. Is it just my fourth? Oh, my it's goodness. It's only your fourth. You So far, you've taken uh, Cavafy, Morrison. Oh, wait, is it your fourth? You've taken, I think it's my fifth. You've taken Cavafy, Alexievich, and Morrison so far. Uh, did, wait, I'm looking. I'm looking at my little list here. Um Oh, I do have two more. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Where will I go next? Um, well, I, I think that I will go with James Baldwin next. Mm, yep. He was and on my list, too. I Oh, I love hearing that. Uh, I thought, how can we not talk about Baldwin, who could be in some ways, you know, the bard, not maybe not the bard, but the the scribe, the, um, you know, the singer of Harlem that he is, but he also goes so far beyond writing about the Black experience in the United States. He writes about the experience of a person and a person in full, mm -hmm. a person who is a man a person who is a homosexual, a person who is a black American, a person who is an artist. Mm -hmm. There are so many facets 
to Baldwin and his work that I, I sort of, every time I think of him, I just sort of do an internal bow um, to his ability to hold up all of himself, to not let himself be diminished in any way. And of course, you know, he had in real life, like any black person in the United States, he endured many, many macro and micro aggressions. He endured just uh, abuse and, and prejudice and racism and just all kinds of horrible things. But he never allowed himself to say, this is who I am. This is all that I am. Mm. And it's one of the reasons he was very critical, for example, of his colleague, Richard Wright, because he felt that Wright's version of the black experience was too closed and too diminishing. Um, and he wanted to make sure that he could be a New Yorker, a Harlemite, a sophisticated man of the world who lived in France, um, a gay man who appreciated male beauty and friendship in all its forms. And when I think of Giovanni's Room, if anyone out there hasn't read Giovanni's Room, run, don't Mm. walk. (laughs) This is one of the most tender, life-affirming, barrier-breaking novels out there. Um, I think that James Baldwin occupies a special space on this list for his commitment to character and um, experience. Mm, I totally agree. This, he raises an interesting question for me in thinking about the idea of a canon because I value him for so much and not just his his writing i think you could include him as a novelist as a short story writer and as an essayist but mm-hmm. also the clips you know the speeches and the debates and the interviews and the the presence he would have when he would appear on a, a television show and i'm wondering if that's going to be part of the western canon going forward is if we're going to look at individuals as Bloom suggests, when he centers this, you know, we could have centered this around works or around uh, critical periods, or you could even include anthologies or, you know, something like that. Instead, he chooses authors and writers. And and it made me wonder if going forward, we will value someone's contributions to something like a canon through their literature, but also through their, uh, you know, the 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 audio they give or the, the, the presence that they have, it seems hard to separate uh, an author from the impact that they have on the internet these days. Well, listen, uh, now we have the internet, but then we had the globe theater mm. or then we had, yeah. you know, a, a newspaper that would publish Dickens in serial form, or we, we could go on and on, you know, it, there's always a way for certain writers, artists, authors to rise above the pack. Um, Jane Austen went and, you know, harangued publishers and good on her. She knew she had something, you know, special and important. Um, And I think this, I've been talking this week a lot with various people for different reasons uh, about female ambition, which is so still so looked down on in our society. Mm. And But it's not just gendered, right? 
artistic ambition is very problematic. You know, how you decide to conduct your, your career as an artist, as a writer, you know, are you going to be someone who gets out there and, you know, tweets a lot about your book? Or are you going to be someone who sits alone quietly and somewhat bitterly because you're not comfortable tweeting about your book? And, you know, what is your level of comfort with giving readings and showing up for panels and going to conferences? All of those things. You know, someone like Cervantes or Dante, let me tell you, they would be at AWP every year. Can you just imagine? <laughs> There you go. There's my masterwork. Dante at AWP. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe I should write that up for McSweeney's. <laughs> but that that's the thing is these artists in their time, in their way, were not afraid to share their work. Now, and that's something really important. Let me say I'm using the word share instead of the word, you know, um, shill or push hmm. because it's not always about you know the person who sells the most copies that's absolutely valid if you want to do that you want to be in it for the money go for it but if you're going to be you know someone who's on this list in the canon you have to be working at your at your um art as well yeah you have time for that. So you're not just out there selling, you know, maybe you're smart enough that you have someone, you know, who works with you, who does, you know, the sales for you. And of course, that's what publishing, you know, what the publishing industry is all about. Um, but my point, and just to you know, make it so I shut up, is that there's always a means of rising to the top. And I just think maybe Baldwin, with, you know, the various speeches and clips and bits and pieces that is helpful in cementing him in people's imaginations and in the cultural imagination, but without the really fine work, we wouldn't care. Mm, right. I think that would be Bloom's view as well, that you just have to, you have to look at kind of the peak of their artistry and their genius and and he seems to have kind of with a couple of exceptions he has montaigne and and uh dr johnson he includes for his criticism montaigne for his essays but for the most part it's novels and plays that he's uh, and a, a few poets that he's including so i think he would kind of say that it's it's not about uh you know the impact that you had politically or your uh you know unless it comes from the greatest work that you've produced in a literary sense. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, of course, we started talking about that and I've forgotten where we are. Are you next? Yes. And this kind of, this is an interesting pick because it, it kind of connects to this in a way, because I think in some ways this figure had a, uh, a big impact on the discussion we've just had about the, centrality of the artist to a work and the almost a uh, if we have uh, you know Dickens or or uh, Dante as an example of someone who would be at AWP this is somebody who would maybe have refused to go to AWP oh, out of uh, <laughs> because it would have been a distraction for him I wanted to pick a novelist who was in between uh, Tolstoy and Proust uh, I could have taken 
Henry James or or thought about Joseph Conrad, but I also wanted to take another French writer. He he has no French fiction and no French poets. Uh, and, you know, that leaves out Baudelaire, it leaves out Rimbaud, Victor Hugo, and so I'm going Balzac. to take uh, Flaubert. Balzac would be another one, yeah. I'm going to take Flaubert. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah. Flaubert. And he's hugely influential, and he stands for the idea that was inherited by Joyce especially, but pretty much all of the the writers who came after, that word choice matters, that prose and style count, that every word must be the right word in the right place, and, and you're looking at, at sounds and colors and building the world brick by brick. It's not, you know, more is not necessarily better. Uh, that it's, you know, you're, you're, you really need to pay attention to your craft when you're putting together this prose. And so I think, um, I think it influenced poets as well as prose writers. And I'll just, um, I guess I'll leave it at that. I think he kind of stands for himself, but certainly Flaubert would be another worthy addition to this list. Flaubert is such a worthy addition, and many, many writers consider Madame Bovary to be the finest novel ever mm-hmm. uh, from start to finish. And, you know, I love thinking of introducing like a bunch of 20 something Instagram influencers to Madame Bovary, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, saying like, look at this, look at everything that's in here. Look at Emma Bovary. She would be one of you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about someone who would be walking around taking pictures of herself in fetching poses and, you know, looking for the solution to the emptiness within her that, you know, she can't seem to resolve and so on and so forth. Like, really understand this, not don't read it and think, what is this fellow going on about? Read it and just enter it, enter into Flaubert's world, and he will not disappoint you. You will completely understand all of this. I mean, I've never forgotten the first time that I read the book. I, I, you know, but Flaubert, oh my God, uh, I've read a lot of Flaubert. I sort of did an unexpected and unofficial minor in French during college. Mm. I took uh, uh, French literature classes, I think every semester. And so a lot of Flaubert, Balzac, Zola, etc. I read in French for the first time, which is not, again, um, talk about, you know, sounding like a privileged ass. <laughs> um, but but I, didn't, I don't mean to, I just mean to say that that's why I, they're unforgettable for me, because yeah. Because here's the thing I was going to say about reading something in a language other than your own. You have to pay attention. Hmm. And so um, Flaubert paid such careful attention to his writing. And when I read Madame Bovary for the first time, it was in French and I had to pay attention. So it mattered to me that he had done that as well. Hmm. Okay. We are coming up on the end. Your final pick. My final pick, um, I think Bloom also had a blind spot when it came to people of Jewish culture mm. and, mm-hmm. and faith. And the fact that uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer, the last great writer in Yiddish, at least in the United States, um, 
he's so important. Another Nobel laureate, um, Isaac Bashevis Singer. Where, where do we start? I mean, what a man, what a mensch. (laughs) (laughs) He was uh, born in the early 1900s in a chattel near Warsaw. Um, His family moved um, into a different chattel when he was young. And he is so much influence. He's so much influenced by Judaism and by the Yiddish language that was his first language. And one of the things that I love uh, that he said is that there's a a spirit um, somewhere in the universe that lives on. And he wanted after the Holocaust um, to bring that spirit you know, to in the United States and keep it alive. Um, another thing that really fascinates me uh, about Singer, and I'm, I mean to say this in context of his literary work and his other commitments, is he was a very committed vegetarian. Hmm. And he really, really believed that the slaughter of anything, any creature was wrong. This is a powerful idea that comes into his stories and novels and all of the things that he, you know, put out there because he believed in a real sanctity of life that has nothing to do with being, you know, anti-abortion or reproductive rights. He believed in a deeply Jewish humanism and mm. a deep commitment to Um, how important life on earth is. And earlier in the show, Jack, you and I were talking about Homer as being outside of this Judeo-Christian belief system. But Singer, to me, is really important in being outside of the Christian tradition. Because in the Jewish tradition, and you don't have to you know, be Jewish or believe in the Jewish faith or anything to see this, is the world is what we have. Unlike the Christian view of heaven and hell, there's not a whole lot of talk. I mean, there are, you know, places that are sort of heaven and hell in Judaism. And believe me, I am neither Jewish nor a Jewish scholar. I'm not trying to, like, be the last word on this. But I'm saying that life on earth is so precious and dear. And it's meant to be engaged in and it's meant to be something where you do good for others. And that runs through all of Singer's work. Mm-hmm. So it is about he wrote about same-sex relationships. He wrote about remember Yentl? I mean that's about transvestism, right? I mm-hmm. mean Yentl the Yeshiva boy. Um it, it's uh, <laughs> right. Yeshiva. I never know how to pronounce that word correctly. I mean it's about, you know, putting on the clothes of the other gender in in society and uh, you know he cared about every aspect of what makes people human. And so I think um, everything he wrote, you can see from Yentl to The Family Moscat, which is one of his great uh, works about family, also a very important theme for him. He had so many amazing short stories, children's books, nonfiction, um, all kinds of things. You know, Enemy is a love story. That's Isaac Bashevis Singer. That's, you know, I mean, people don't realize his influence on popular culture enough. And so his commitment to loving humanity and his ability 
to take on a new language and write in both Yiddish and English, he he just stuns me. Um, so I'm really happy to be able to include him on my list. Mm, it's a great pick. And, and I am so happy that you took him because I agree, this is a, a bit of an oversight on Bloom's part. I don't know if uh, Saul Bellow was too recent for him or uh, why in particular he would have uh, uh, not uh, included more Jewish authors, but uh, definitely Singer is a worthy choice. And so much of this, the problem, so much of the early feedback on this uh, list that Bloom put out and, and you know, so much of what jumps out at us today is just how many dead white men there are on here and, and how many are, are similar and so on. And, and I was tempted to just take five women. Now that I'm coming up to my last choice, I'll talk about some of the also-rans. Uh, I was tempted to just take five women. I mean, it could have added Edith right. Wharton, Mary right. Shelley, the Brontes, Alice Monroe, Toni Morrison. It would have, you know, and I'm leaving out a bunch of others, uh, you know, that could have added, that could have really added to the list. Or five people of color, Frederick Douglass, we mentioned Morrison and Baldwin, Langston Hughes, August Wilson, Garcia Marquez. I, I mean, they all would have uh, helped with this list. I also thought about some areas to kind of think outside the box. He he included Johnson, uh, Samuel Johnson, and said, well, he's a literary critic. He's the best at it. It's hard to imagine things without him. But he he doesn't include any philosophers, really. Uh, Karl Marx and Adam Smith and Nietzsche and, and David Hume. And, you know, there's plenty that... that could have probably been in here. Um, filmmakers, that that might be a bit of a reach for him, but you could probably argue for a, a Orson Welles or a Kieslowski or a Charlie Chaplin or someone as being uh, kind of part of the canon, if you're willing to look at literature as being a little bit expansive. Bob Dylan, the songwriter, has kind of made his way into the Nobel Prize's view of, uh, the Prize Committee's view of literature, and that's another thing. You mentioned children's literature, uh, there's no real representative of children's literature on here, well, but that's we, certainly uh, that's another list. I don't know. Yeah. There's there's some a little bit of crossover, but oh my goodness, if we could do a, a a canon of children's literature, what a great list that would be. Yeah, and I I know uh, Bloom in particular had this sort of uh, burr in his saddle about uh, genre fiction and and some of that. But I mentioned Mary Shelley, H.G. Uh, Wells, or Tolkien, or or Margaret Atwood, or you know uh, Ursula Le Guin, Agatha Christie, Arthur Conan Doyle. There's plenty of people who would have kind of helped us, uh, you know, push the tent up in that direction as well. So we're sort of uh, we're just scratching the surface with what we can add with with ten authors here. Where are we going? I can't wait to hear the, the person you've chosen, Jack, now that you've talked about all Well, this. maybe all that was my way of clearing out all the directions I didn't take, because what I'm taking is, is a dead white man and it is kind of a, a oh, traditional right. choice. But oh. I'm looking at this list and just knowing the literature that I have taken pleasure from and have viewed as essential it is hard to believe that Bloom, uh, given his own categories and his own criteria, it's hard to believe that he limited himself to one romantic poet, uh, William Wordsworth, who might be the best, but I'm going to take John Keats. 
because I think Keats oh, now is... Oh, this is a sentimental favorite for me. <laughs> uh, big Good. Time. Uh, because I, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt you because I'll let you talk in a second, but, you know, uh, that was one of like my, my first soul pilgrimages um, mm-hmm. in London when I got to be there by myself for the first time was going to the Keats house. And, uh, you know, Keats is, I think he, you know, for many people, a, a gateway drug yeah, <laughs> right. literature. So um, I want to hear, though, what you appreciate about Keats. No, I think that's right. I think that's why he's he's so influential as this kind of gateway drug. He's he's this example that we all have of especially young people, the doomed poet who's writing against time and writing about young love and, and writing yes. about a kind of excitement about the world that's also tinged with this uh, feeling of death and this coming to grips with the idea that that it's all going to end and 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 that there can be love but it's doomed love and kind of a, a just falling to one's knees in the face of beauty and the beauty of the world but also then kind of picking up the pen and saying uh, I can I can be immortal as well um, through this poetry that I can write and and the beauty of his lyrics and just the, sort of the the aching quality to it that I don't really find in Wordsworth and his poems I think are just indispensable to our literature and and him as a figure is indispensable. You know his odes are such classics. And also such billboard top 10 of the, of the yeah, shop. Yeah, right, right. Can't think of the ode in the Western canon, or at least in English, without thinking of Keats. And, you know, we've already talked about Homer. I mean, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, come on, talk about a gateway drug poem. It just is something that so many of us who are obsessed with literature feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think I I look at it and I think, oh, I want to read this, you know, out loud. And I don't mean I want to read it out loud right now to your audience. Every time I look at it, um, much have I traveled in the realms of gold. I just what I'm trying to say is Keats is almost it's almost irresistible to read, Mm -hmm. to hear his poems. And of course, Homer, it his verse, his there, whomever Homer was, <laughs> their work would have been heard verbally first. And Keats manages in a time, a very much a time of the written word being printed and disseminated, manages to keep that irresistible feeling of you just want to hear it. You want to hear his verse. You want to speak his verse. Yeah. It is kind of a funny thing to think that I'm I'm here making an argument that John Keats should be considered part of the Western canon. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> I mean it's, Oh, Hello Bloom says nah. Yeah, right, right. Uh, okay. Well, before we go here, uh if you I know I've kept you a long time and I'm sorry about that that we've gone so long, but I've been having oh, no, so much fun. Wonderful. But uh why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast Missing Pages, which um in some ways, well, I think you've established yourself now as someone who loves books, but this is a, a pretty interesting angle on books and the publishing world. So what is Missing Pages all about? 
It is someone, uh, I was just told by my showrunner, the wonderful Kayla Lippman, that uh, she'd heard from someone that they said, oh, I just find it irresistible. It's a little campy. And I thought, well, that's not what I thought I was going for, but maybe I am, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the Missing Pages is about looking into bad behavior in the literary world, in the publishing world, with writers and authors and editors and everyone, you know, you can think of who goes um, into what makes up a book. Mm. And we wanted originally, you know, we thought, oh, well, this will be sort of a gossipy page six kind of thing. But uh, we developed it into something deeper, into something where we were trying to look a little deeper. I'm not claiming that we're writing anything long form or doing truly hard hitting investigative journalism. But we wanted to say, okay, this happened. What in the author's background, what in the publishing industry, what in the zeitgeist made it happen? Why would this have been possible at this particular time? What needs to change? And if something changes, will something like this be eradicated or will it still go on? Because let's face it, the world is full of cons and grifters. I mean, we're never going to be completely without them. And so it is a lot of fun. And, you know, maybe, like I said, it is campy or dishy or, you know, funny or whatever, but it also has a serious side. And I keep telling everyone that, we are having our episodes fact-checked and legally reviewed. So we are doing our best, even if we get really um, dishy, to make sure that we are not exaggerating anything or telling untruths. Mm. Okay. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to go check that out. Bethann Patrick, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Jack. And uh, anytime I look forward to another visit, um, if that is down the road. Mm. Well, you've given me many uh, new topic choices. And now that I know who the expert is and the passionate advocate of those people are, I will know who to call. There you go. Thanks. Okay. That's going to do it for the history of literature. Do check out Beth Ann on Twitter as the book maven. She writes lots of reviews and posts lots of good content there. And please do check out her podcast, Missing Pages, which dives into the secrets and scandals in the publishing world. Highly recommended. Which reminds me of my friend, Lee. First name, Lee. Last name, Recommended. I greeted him one day. Hi, Lee recommended, and he said, what is? I had no response. Uh, you are, I guess. He did not smile. So the next time I called him by his first and middle name so there wouldn't be so much confusion, although it did not help that his middle name is unusual. Literally, it's unusual. So he walked in the door and I said, hi, Lee unusual. And he said, what is? I realized I cannot win with Mr. Lee Unusual recommended. So in exasperation, I cried out, why, Lee? And he said, who is? Well, I don't know, Lee. Not me, apparently. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>